Good morning, church. Great to see you. Hope you've uh, had a great summer. It's so good to be back and uh, privileged to be kicking us off in this uh, new teaching series. And uh, great to have uh, the Blythes and the Bakers back. Uh, Andrew and uh, David, I don't know if you realise that Man United in your absence are the top of the league. Um, Arsenal are in 16th position and Man City are in 4th. So um, the Lord is blessing the Premiership with such great football. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's great to be with you. If you're new and you're visiting us, uh, my name's Gareth, one of the leaders here. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Stick around, join us for a coffee afterwards. Um, If you've got a Bible, um, turn it on or grab one of the paper versions here and turn to Micah, the book of Micah, sort of three quarters of the way through the Old Testament. And as you're finding that, I'll just give a little bit of an intro. Every day in our lives, we face hundreds of decisions. Some of those decisions are ethical decisions, moral decisions in our families and in our friendships. We make choices. We, in our jobs, in our workplaces, we make challenging choices that affect um, some of perhaps our moral and ethical outcomes in our businesses, from our behavior in public to our seemingly secret, small, private decisions. We often face some of the toughest ethical dilemmas each day. And these decisions that you and I make on a daily basis as followers of Jesus affect who we are. They affect who people see. They affect how people may or may not respond to Jesus or to the church. It's not rocket science, but our decisions in terms of what we do and what we say can enhance the life around us or destroy it. We can build people up with the things and the words that we say, or we can strip them down. It's a great little um, all-age family um, introduction from James and Rachel, who are outstanding, by the way. We've got an amazing kids team, haven't we? Should we give them a round of applause? And, um, but of course, on a grander scale, in our culture, you know, people regularly complain, and it's often, you know, in social media, it's often on Facebook or Twitter or some other kind of form of, you know, publicly putting our views out there. We regularly complain about some of the things that we see in the news, some of the things that we see in the press. And often um, it can be a bit of a verbal vomit. And sometimes we don't think about the things that we say and the responses and how people may perceive those responses in the things that we say and do. I wonder what Jesus would say on Facebook. Facebook. And then we have some of the ethical misconducts that we see in the regular streams of news. You know, CEOs of organizations raiding the corporate coffers, widespread auditing fraud, unbridled cheating in sports, scientists doctoring data, reporters lying about their sources, politicians being politicians, perhaps. Sorry. The frequency and variety of these instances in our culture seem endless. You know, you turn on the news today and you read about what's going on in North Korea. You hear about um, uh, what's just happened in Beijing today. I don't know if you're up on that, but um, schools of immigrant workers, children's schools that have just been bulldozed for no apparent reason other than they didn't want the poor in their midst in Beijing. Atrocious behavior. You know, what's going on in Myanmar? You've probably picked up on that. 
Muslims being beheaded, butchered by other tribes, people of other faiths. How do we know in our life what is right and how do we know what is wrong? In 2009, Lily Allen, the um, um, pop artist, released a single, Fear. And in this song, and we're going to watch it in a sec, in this song she, she represents a generation that are screaming to know what is right and wrong in our culture. Cultural icon of the 21st century, perhaps speaking out for a generation that are desperate to know what's right and what's wrong because what we see in the media, what we see portrayed um, on television often doesn't represent the truth. But then again, when we do seek to speak the truth, when we think we know what's right, we can often get shot down, can't we? It was George Orwell in the 20th century who said this, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. I wonder if you've encountered that in your workplace. I wonder if you've encountered trying to say, well, actually, um, I don't think that's right. And then perhaps the response is, well, what's right for you is what's right for you. And quite frankly, that's your opinion. You know, is there any absolute truth anymore? Asking the question of what's right and wrong, what's good versus what's bad, they're important questions in, to ask in life. And we ask them in all kinds of different relationships, don't we? We ask them in the workplace, we ask them in our families, don't we? We're at the stage of trying to teach our son Jacob, tw 23 months, kind of like what's right and what's wrong. And, um, you know, in our marriage, Zoe, um, when we first got, got married a couple of years ago, we're trying to figure out what was right and wrong. And there are certain things in marriage that are really important, that are right and what's wrong, like clothes on the floor. That's right, right? <laughs> but then there's, there's also this one, which to me is quite critical to married life. Um, I don't know if you've uh, ever thought about how you hang your loo roll. But there is a right way and there is a wrong way. And let me tell you, there is only one right way in the Dickinson household. And my wife, who's currently in Starlights with the children, won't know because she de never listens to me when I preach. And she'll never know that she's wrong. How do we know what's right and what's wrong? They're important questions to ask, but perhaps a more critical question to ask is, who is right? Who is the ultimate authority? Who sets in our culture, in our world, what is right and what is wrong? Who sets the benchmark? Who is it that sets our moral compass? Now, of course, before we pop out Jesus, is it? Does Jesus really set our moral compass, and I'm not talking about our culture, I'm speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm speaking to myself. Does Jesus set my moral compass? Over the next 12 weeks, we're going to be journeying um, together. So we're in this for a long haul, this teaching series, as we seek to unfold God's vision here at Trinity, what he wants us to do, the right things that he's calling us to as a church, as individuals, and as a community. And in some ways, as this unfolds, some of the vision that God unfolds to us will, will stand in stark contrast to culture. Because our culture has drifted. 
drifted quite far away from what is right and what is wrong. And to help us, we're going to look into the book of Micah. Trust me, we're going to get there in a minute. I know you've opened it and you're thinking, when's he going to get there? But in this, the beginning of this teaching series, I wanted to give a little bit of context um, to Micah and the book of Micah. And what we find particularly um, in Micah, right at the, towards, towards the end, is this verse 8 that has been on the trailer. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Verse eight. And that's primarily where we're hanging our coats. That's where we're nailing our colors to a mast as a church, as a leadership in terms of the future and what God may be calling us to as a worshiping community. Micah 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, and that's mankind, womankind, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That's what the Lord requires of his people. But a little bit of context, perhaps, for the book of Micah. Micah was written um, in the 8th century, just um, before Christ. And um, it's um, one of those minor books of the prophets. It's not a minor book because its message isn't important, because its message is very important. Um, it's minor because there's only ch- seven chapters so that's one chapter a day for the next week. Why not give that a go? As opposed to one of the major prophets, Isaiah, which is 66 chapters. Take the next two months over that if you'd like. But Micah's message, however brief, is just as important. In fact, Micah and Isaiah are writing at a similar time in the 8th century. Both of them appear to have a, the same message, but um, to different parts of, um, of God's people. Um, Micah is writing to the southern kingdom of Judah and um, Israel, uh, sorry, Isaiah is primarily writing to Israel in the northern part of the kingdom with Samaria as its um, main city. And there's a map coming up here, I think, which just gives you a little bit of an indication of um, the, 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 the geography of Judah in, uh, um, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and Judah with its head, its holy city of Jerusalem. And um, Micah is from a little kind of town outside of uh, Jerusalem, just southwest of uh, Jerusalem called Morsheth. And uh, Morsheth, um, there's a little picture of it there. You could quite imagine that that's a view from Cleve Hill, couldn't you? That there's a town in the Bible a little bit like Cheltenham, perhaps. And here is Micah writing to the people of God and all that he knows of his hometown and all that he knows of the people of God in Judah. So in the north, what we know about Israel is that, is that Israel, and, and Isaiah is writing quite um, strongly, is um, Israel is, a, is a full of a life of sin and judgment. And God's people were clearly and obviously um, not following God's law. But in Judah in the south where Micah is writing primarily his message um, to, to that group of people. While things on the surface look pretty good. Things on the surface look pretty good for Judah. They look like a healthy people. There's prosperity in the land. But Micah knew that in reality their hearts were far from God's plan. Their hearts were far from God's plan. And their sin was hidden through their religion and through their ritual practices as a nation. And what we also know is that Judah, whilst enjoying prosperity, 
Judgment was coming. And that's a real message to all churches because let's not become a complacent church in this nation to think that there's prosperity in our churches because that doesn't necessarily mean that God is blessing his people. And the book of Micah falls into sort of three sort of acts. It's a, it's a sort of drama, as it were. And the, the, the stage of this drama is the whole foundation of the earth. And the setting is the mountains before God. And Micah speaks as a witness for God to the whole of creation, to the mountains, as we begin to read this book, as God accuses the people of God, God accuses Judah of their rebellion against him. And before this courtroom jury, Micah speaks God's prophetic word. Micah chapter 1 verse 2, we read this. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen earth, all of, who, all of you who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. God is bearing witness against the people of God in Judah. And then in this three-act drama, firstly, the first chunk of it, the first couple of chapters, God accuses. Then as we come into the middle, Micah brings a warning to the people of God. And then he brings a message of a future hope. And when Micah brings God's charge against Israel, it's for some specific failings in their lives as a nation, including idolatry. Idolatry is that thing that God hates. Idolatry is that thing where, where we put things before God, where God is not first in our lives. I wonder if that might be an issue for you or for me, that there are things in my life that I put before my obedience to God. One of the other charges that Micah brings against the people of God as he speaks for God is pride is their treatment of the poor the people of God have are failing the poor in their midst there's bribery amongst the leaders there's the pursuit of materialism and wealth that's one of the charges that God brings against Israel there's immorality yes in essence there's empty religion their faith is passive. There's no engagement with what God is calling them to do as a people of God. It's a harsh warning. And then Micah warns that God's judgment is coming because of this sin, because of this rebellion against God. And there are consequences to the actions of the people of God. Both the things they've done and the things that they've also failed to do for God. You know, sin is not just about moral behavior. Sin is also about when we fail to do what God calls us to do as the people of God. And then Micah prophesies a future hope, a, a promise of one who will come and who will rescue and one who will come and save. And that future is in the Messiah, is in Jesus, as we know. When his kingdom comes and rules. And we live in this tension now, do we not, of the 
now the come kingdom of Jesus Christ and the future coming kingdom where God's kingdom is being more and more established as the kingdom of God advances through the church. So as we read Micah together, I wonder if we might, over these coming weeks, take some time to personally reflect, maybe have a little bit of a spiritual health check. I know I am. It's very um, scary reading the book of Micah. It's very, even more scary preparing a message on the book of Micah in my view. Is there idolatry in my life? Is there pride in my life? Am I pursuing materialism and wealth? Is that my goal? The accumulation of things in this life? Where are we storing up our treasures? Am I ignoring the poor? Is my faith passive? Or am I actively seeking God's kingdom here on earth. So Micah chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Baal, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteousness acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my, my transgression, for my sin, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. One other translation says, to do justice. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6.8 is one of the great summaries, I think, in the Bible. It's an incredible statement of God's call on the life of the church. And it gives a very clear and almost complete picture of how God expects his people to conduct themselves. This is what it means to be church. This is what it means to be Trinity family. I think it's one of those verses, Micah 6, 8, you kind of, if I had a tattoo, I probably ought to get tattooed. I also once wanted a little cherub on my shoulder once, but that was a bit weird, but... To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And as a way of introduction, what does it mean to act justly? It requires being honest and fair. It requires seeing other people receiving fairness and what is right. But notice what um, God says through Micah. He says, act justly. 
You know, it's one thing to have an appreciation of justice, to recognize that, well, of course, justice needs to happen. But Micah says, act justly. As I said, the other translation, Amplified Bible says, do justice. This is not something passive for the people of God, but it's active engagement. Active engagement in doing what is right in our culture. Doing what is right in the world. Doing what is right when we see something that is wrong. I don't know about you, but you know, sometimes as I read some of the news streams um, on my phone or, or watch BBC News, you know, I get angry. We should get angry at people being mutilated and beheaded in Myanmar. We should get angry at the fact that a school is being bulldozed in Beijing for immigrant workers' children, that they have no possibility of an education anymore. We should get angry about that. We should, we should speak out appropriately, in an appropriate way, in a loving way, and say, well, hang on a minute, what do we think about this? You know, and for you, if your vehicle is Facebook or social media of some kind, then use it. But use it to the glory of God. Use it in a way that doesn't condemn but use it in a way that says, hang on a minute, culture, is this right? And maybe there are other kinds of different instances that you find yourself in on a weekly basis. Do justice. And we must love mercy. Mercy has been um, um, translated here, but it can also be translated as kindness. A covenant kindness, a promise to do Kindness, and again, it's to act, it's to do. I wonder how today or tomorrow or this last week have you acted in kindness towards someone? And perhaps to someone who maybe in your heart of hearts you just didn't think they deserved it. Seems to me to be the unconditional kindness of God that he gives to us. And we must act humbly. What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? It requires an atti- a, a, you know, a continuous attitude of gratitude in our lives. And an acknowledgement, a recognition that, that actually we totally and utterly trust God for everything. That he is Lord and we're not. It's an unfading respect for his purposes in our lives, even if it doesn't make sense. You know, these things challenge us, don't they? Well, they challenge me. It's a, you know, it's a hard book to read. But over these next 12 weeks, we're not going to shy away from what God speaks out through his prophets to the people of God today. And there's application for us here today. So what does it mean For us to be a church that does what is good in the eyes of the Lord. When our culture goes a different way perhaps. To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. What does it mean to act justly, love mercy in your workplace? To walk humbly with God at the school gate or in your life group or in your community. The next 12 weeks we're going to be sitting in this. So I'm just going to focus on one final little bit 
as I kind of like begin to come into land, you'll be pleased to hear. It might take a little bit longer than five minutes. The first point is this, and the first part of this teaching series is, what is, what is God's justice? What is God's justice? The first thing to say is that as we do, as we do a, a quick overview of the Bible, one of the things that we discover very clearly is that God is the source of justice. He is the benchmark for justice in our world. The whole Bible is clear. God is the source of justice. Proverbs 29, we read this. Many seek an audience with a ruler, but it's from the, but it's from the Lord that one gets justice. There are 130 direct verses relating to the justice of God. So, I don't know about you, but that tells me it's quite important to God. He is the source of all justice. But what is his justice? I came across this definition. Justice is that perfection of God's nature. Where he is infinitely righteous in himself, perfectly right. He, he can't you know, wander away from his righteousness. Everything he does is right. And that righteousness of the divine nature is exercised in his right government, in his right purposes, in his right plans for humanity. In short, God is good. And he cannot but be good in all situations. He is just, he is right all the time. And he cannot wander away from that. Because that is his nature. That is God's character. He can only do what is right and what is pure. The Psalms are full of um, the writers of these songbooks, these worship songs. And we need more worship songs about justice. Because that's the cry of God's heart. And one of the ways that we, we communicate God's heart is in our song Worship, But in Psalm 89, verse 14, we read this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. They're the bedrock, the benchmark. They're the, they're the thing that hold together the throne of God. Love and faithfulness go before you. Love and faithfulness. There's this, so there's, there's, there's God and God's throne you know, sitting over all of the cosmos, heaven and earth as he, you know, as he comes and mingles in with us because his presence is with us. It's not kind of like up there in some kind of like, you know, ether sort of there. God is present with us. That's his promise throughout the whole of scripture. He's always with us. But, it, but God, as he sits on his throne, as he, sta- as he sits in his place of ultimate authority, of ultimate government over all of creation, over all of um, you know, the, the demonic realms of the heavenly realms, as God sits on his throne, its foundation is doing what is right. And what, I, what is wonderful that the psalmist writes here is that his love goes before. You cannot separate God's justice from his love because his love is leading the way his love his the way that he acts is totally and utterly out of a motive of affection for his people and he's faithful in that love so God is the source secondly God sets the standard 
God sets the standard for justice for everyone. Not Christians, everyone. God sets the standard. You know, around the same time um, as Micah, Isaiah was, Isaiah was prophesying judgment to the northern kingdom of Israel. And in Isaiah 28, um, he writes this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. This cornerstone, if you know anything about buildings, I don't know much about buildings, but the illustration here is that the cornerstone is the main foundation for a building. If it's not there, the building will crumble. And in this prophetic illustration, the stone is God himself. And Isaiah is saying that faith in God alone is the only source of our security, of our foundation in life. Fast forward 700 years. The New Testament testifies that Jesus is that cornerstone. A couple of weeks ago, um, just before the summer, we were in 1 Peter. You might remember these verses. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be, holy and to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. With Jesus as the foundation of our life, the benchmark... The measuring line for God is justice and how we act, how we do justice in the world. Our worship to God is to act justly in the world. And justice is the pleasing sacrifice to God. Amos. Again, writing about justice and righteousness. You know, uses some language of public worship when he says this. I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, strong words. I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your drums, guitars, electric guitars, whatever. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness. Like a never failing stream. You know, the standard, the measuring line for our life as followers of Jesus is not whether we stand in church with our hands in the air worshipping. Maybe with our hands on our heart. That's the kind of cool thing to do at the moment. It's not that. It's not whether we're listening to Hillsong or Bethel or Jesus Culture or Worship Central on our Spotify playlist but it's to act justly. That is the measuring line of our faith in God. That is the worship that God requires. I wonder how we fare. I wonder how you fare. I wonder how I fare. I wonder how we fare as a church in our acting justly in Cheltenham. 
when race week happens and the prostitutes arrives and the brothels open up in the hotels and we rent out our houses to the race goers I wonder what God thinks I wonder what God thinks about his church I wonder what he thinks about his church acting justly so he's the source he's the standard praise God he saves I'm just going to take a little bit more time actually because this is important. Because what happens when we don't cut the mustard in our justice? What happens when we don't hit the mark, as it were? What happens when we don't live out our lives to act justly? Well, the Bible teaches that there will come a time, an appointed time at God's choosing, when all of humanity will be asked to give account for our lives. John's Revelation, the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20 and 21, I encourage you to read it if you have, but the Bible gives a description of the day of judgment. It's not something we talk about much here at Trinity, but I just want to give a little bit of it because it's biblical and it's the reality nonetheless for us as followers of Jesus. Because we will all come before God to give account for our actions. We will all come before God to give account for our actions, both the things that we've done wrong and the things that we failed to do. But here is the hope. Here is the joy of following Jesus. Because even though followers of Jesus will stand before God in his judgment seat and we will be judged for all our actions and all our sins will be there in the books recorded. The price has been paid and there is no punishment for you and I because Jesus has paid it all. Simon Ponsonby in his book The Lamb Wins writes this, All people's sins are revealed. He's speaking about the day of judgment. All people's sins are revealed. The righteous and the unrighteous. The sins of the saints, that's followers of Jesus, are revealed. Feel a bit nervous? He goes on to say this. As forgiven sins, praise the Lord, under the blood of Jesus, no longer incurring judgment and no longer bringing shame. It is like a bill stamped, paid. But the bill still shows what has been paid. And so as followers of Jesus, we don't face condemnation. We face eternity with God. But let us not wash away too quickly the magnitude of God's mercy that is required Because he is a just God. God acts in judgment towards our sin. Forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ at Calvary. And it's only as we begin to understand the magnitude of God's mercy acting. Because of the justice that is required. 
that we might also see the, magnificent, the magnificence of his extravagant grace and his love. And so in eternity, we worship Jesus and we say, we praise you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you have saved me. Thank you, God, that you know me. Thank you, God, that you've paid the price for me. So as we journey through Micah 6.8, maybe we ought to ask ourselves, how do we fare, church? How do we fare with what God requires of us? Let's stand.